Um, Proverbs. Does anyone remember the very first question that I asked? Okay, we started this back in early June, and I know I, if you're familiar with my preaching, I ask at least 50 to 100 questions per message, so wasn't anticipating anyone would remember, but does anyone remember the very first question I asked as it related to Proverbs? See, that's a bummer, because I was going to give you a gift card to Chipotle to the person who remembered. Not going to happen today. Series, you'll be like... Remember and write down this first question. The first question that I asked, uh, is there anyone who is skillful at living life? That was my very first question to you was, is there anyone that was here back in June that as you would examine how you're going about living life right now, that you would look at your life, choices, decisions, and look at how you're navigating life and say, I am skillfully living life well. I have mastered the art of skillful living. Anyone remember, no gift card on this one, uh, what the Hebrew word is? I've only mentioned this once, but the Hebrew word for wisdom. Anyone remember? Awesome. Awesome. Well done, people. Hakma. Anyone say it? Hakma. Okay. Got to clear your throat on that one. But Hakma uh, is how what the Hebrew word is for wisdom. And when that word is used, it's usually used in reference to those who have a certain skill set. So artists or craftsmen or builders, administrators, musicians, they would have something called Hakma, which means they had wisdom. And what wisdom meant is that they had a certain skill set in a certain area, whether it was music or you know, administration or building things. We have spent the entire summer in the book of Proverbs so that each of us would grow in a word that we've forgotten. Uh, and that's okay. I didn't expect you to remember the Hebrew word, but I hope you would remember why we did Proverbs is that so each of us would grow in having hakma, the ability to navigate and live life skillfully. Uh, Living skillfully, we've talked a lot about this, means that we know how to live in such a way to make godly decisions and choices. And those who do that, who live and make decisions and choices daily, not just one-time decisions, but daily decisions that are in line with God, who God is and what God's doing, have hakma, they have wisdom. We've talked about that there's a big difference between people who know a lot, that's not wisdom. That's called knowledge. Wisdom is being able to apply what you know to how you live. And so what we've been trying to do this summer is to, as Proverbs has been teaching us, how do I apply what I know of God to how I live? Wisdom and knowledge are not divorced from each other. Uh, They work together, but wisdom applies what we know to how we live. Now, for me personally, I have spent a lot of time in Proverbs, uh, the book itself, reading a lot of different books about Proverbs, a lot of different commentaries. And one of the things that I've come to realize is I need to really seek and pursue and run after wisdom. Not because wisdom is very elusive and is plain hide and seek and is hard to find, 
but I've seen in myself, and I don't know if this would be true of you, how quickly it is to go back into what Proverbs actually calls folly. I can live and make decisions one day, but then the very next day, it's very easy for me to go back to old ways, old patterns, old habits, old ways of thinking. And this is what Solomon actually said about Proverbs. This is Proverbs, or about wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5 and 7. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not, do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom. She will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. There's something, we have a responsibility as it comes to wisdom. Do not forsake wisdom, to love her, uh, to see that wisdom is supreme, and to get wisdom. Even though it costs us everything we have, there's nothing more valuable than to have wisdom. And as Proverbs has instructed us, really in two things, it's taught us God's truth, meaning how to live godly lifestyles how to be godly people, and not just like theoretical knowledge of God, but it's taught us very practical knowledge of how God wants us to live, his plans, his purposes, his will, his way, the path that he wants us to walk. That's the first thing Proverbs taught us, and the second second thing Proverbs has taught us is how do I apply what I know to how I live? How do I get wisdom and then apply that wisdom to how I live? I'm repeating a lot of some of the things we've covered over the summer, but just in case you missed it, I wanted you to catch kind of the heart behind this whole series is that we as a people, both individually and then as a community, would pursue, we would love, we would cherish wisdom, that we would have lives reflective of living out what we know. We wouldn't just be a a people that know a lot about a lot of things, but don't apply what we know to how we live. That's not wisdom. Actually, wisdom is not as much as heard as it is seen. You can hear someone who's got a lot of knowledge, but you can't hear wisdom per se. But what you can do with wisdom is you can see wisdom. The wisdom literature in the New Testament, uh, James, half-brother of Jesus, actually said this about wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life by deeds done in, in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you have wisdom, it will be seen, not heard. If you have wisdom, it will show up. It will manifest itself in the decisions and the choices that you make every single day. That's why every single day I need to make the decision of another day to pursue wisdom. And one of the things Proverbs made very clear is, I can't get wisdom on my own. Like, it just doesn't come from within me. What I love about what Proverbs actually taught about wisdom is, first and foremost, wisdom comes from God. Proverbs 2, verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Flip over to the New Testament, the wisdom literature of the New Testament in the book of James. If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. If you really want wisdom, you have to go to God and ask 
him for wisdom. And the beautiful promise of Proverbs and is what we just read in James is, to those who come asking for wisdom, God is generous to give wisdom to all without finding fault. Meaning he doesn't look at you and say, no, you've been a schmuck all of these years, I'm not giving you wisdom. He looks at you because you've come to him. And by the way, to even come to God asking for wisdom will take a great deal of humility. It takes a great deal of humility to ask for something that you don't have from someone else who does have it. So it takes a humble man or a humble woman to come to God and say, I am lacking wisdom. God, will you give me the wisdom I desire and the wisdom that I need? So wisdom, first and foremost, comes from God. But then Proverbs taught us that wisdom, the beginning of wisdom, does anyone remember what the beginning of wisdom is? The fear of the Lord. Whoever said that, great. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is quoting Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Bible teaches really two types of fears, and I'm not talking about phobias in terms of being freaked out by snakes or spiders or something. Uh, teaches two different types of fear. You will either fear man or you will either fear God. If you fear man, you will, more than God, you will live your life in order to please man, even if it means sinning against God or doing clearly what God doesn't want you to do. So if you're doing that, you clearly don't have wisdom. But if you are a man or a woman who fears the Lord, and I won't explain all of this, but fear, fearing God does not mean I'm afraid of God, where I don't show up with God. Fear of God is that I have a sense of awe and wonder of God that leads me to worship Him. That's the first aspect. And then the second aspect of fearing God is hating, literally hating, that which would separate us from Him. If you were to read Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. So it's pretty clear. Fearing God has, means a sense of awe and wonder that leads me to worship Him, and a sense of I just I can't stand sin, pride, arrogance, perversity of speech, evil behavior, whatever it might be, I do not like I actually hate the things that separate me, separate me from God. So we have covered so far wisdom and how wisdom plays out specifically in our purity, uh, in our heart. What does it look like to have wisdom in our heart? We've looked at things like discernment, friendship, what it means to be a wise man and a wise woman. We've looked at marriage. How do you have wisdom and apply it to marriage? How do you apply wisdom to the parental relationship? How do you apply wisdom uh, to your words, to your speech? How do you apply wisdom to your work? How can you work in such a way where wisdom shows itself? And then last week, Paul Fleming did a great job uh, speaking to wisdom as it relates to our finances. How could we look at our finances and someone would say, that person has great wisdom just by examining our finances. Today, that was a lot of kind of catch up to where we've been this summer. But today, I wanted to finish with just one last question. And this is the question. One of the things that uh, the Bible makes clear is that the greatest commandment 
is to love God, is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Meaning all of me loving God all of the time, uh, that's the greatest commandment Jesus said. The second commandment that Jesus said uh, is the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so this morning, I wanted to finish with the question of what does it really look like for me to love my neighbor? How do I apply wisdom to the relationships that I have with people around me? I'm not talking about friendship. One of the things that Scripture makes pretty clear is that our neighbor is not someone who just lives right next to you. If that was the case, then you'd only have maybe two, three, four neighbors. If you lived in an apartment complex, you might have more than that. If you own a house, you only have a couple neighbors right around you. So what it means to to a neighbor is not someone who lives next to you, but your neighbor is someone who is standing next to you, meaning everyone is our neighbor. So wherever we are, there are people there with us. That person in that moment in time, they are our neighbor. And so the question I just want to finish with is, how do I relate, how do I apply wisdom, godly, biblical, proverbial wisdom, to the relationships with the so many people that I have living around me. I mean, just consider for a second, how many people do you interact with on a day-to-day basis? You've, if you have a job, you've got a lot of people that you're working with, and some of your jobs might have small teams of people, but you are just bumping into people all day long. If you ride the T or you take commuter rail or bus or just public transportation, you are sitting around and riding with people every single day. Certainly, if you live in the suburbs or maybe have a house, you live in around a lot of different people. So the question is, how do you relate with those people that are around you every single day? So that when people look at your life, they can say they have wisdom as it shows up in the relationships that they have with their neighbor. So I'm going to give four things. This is actually going to be pretty quick. And for those of you who think, Michael, you preach really long, I really mean it this time. These are four things of how we are to apply wisdom to the relationships that we have with our neighbor. Keep in mind, our neighbor is anyone and everyone that we are are around, that we're standing next to, that we might be sitting with. If you go to Starbucks, it's a place filled with neighbors. How do you relate with those people? One obvious, you could just ignore everyone. I only care about my friends. I only care about my immediate circle. Well, that's not wisdom. Wisdom teaches us that we are to have, well, I'll explain the kind of relationship with our neighbor where we don't ignore them. We actually embrace all people no matter where we are. So four ways Proverbs instructs us how to cultivate relationship with our neighbor that is both beneficial and very purposeful. So number one is this. Live with your eyes and your ears wide open. Your first approach to your relationship with your neighbor is live with your ears open and live with your eyes open. Question, is it just, just consider some of the people that you're around every single day. Fast forward to Tuesday when you go back to the place where you spend a lot of your time, whether it be work or wherever it might be. What are some of the things that you see 
around you? What are some of the things that you hear around you? What are some of the, the things that you see people doing? What are some of the things you hear people saying? If you don't know what people, if you don't have eyes to see where people are at and things that are going on with them or around them, and if you don't have ears to listen to and to hear what's going on with people around you, that will be very tough to cultivate any relationship with them that's purposeful or beneficial. Proverbs actually says this, verse, chapter 21, verse 13. If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. One of the things I'll explain a little bit more as I go on, but when we're talking about the poor, we're not just talking about a poverty that means a person who doesn't have food on their table or a place to live. That is an aspect of poverty. But Scripture, both Old Testament, New Testament, as well as in Proverbs, explains that poverty is so much more deeper than just a piece of bread or a roof over your head. That's an aspect of poverty or being poor. We live around poor people all the time, and I'm not just talking about people who don't have food or a place to live. So go back to the initial question. What do you hear people saying? What are some of the conversations that you hear taking place? If we were to listen and listen attentively and carefully, I think a lot of the things that we would hear is a lot of people are actually crying out in pain. A lot of people are either hurting, are lonely, are broken, are confused, are lost. There's a lot of people who are seeking, asking questions. If we just slowed down and listened to our neighbor and what they were saying, attentive to their cry, God would use us to come alongside and encourage our neighbor, to love our neighbor, to guide our neighbor, to bless our neighbor. Proverbs 21.13, if a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor. It's this picture of someone who lives life with their hands over their ears, I don't want to hear what's going on around me because I just don't care. And if I actually hear something, then I might feel guilty if I don't get engaged and involved with what I just heard. And so I can live my life with my ears shut to my neighbor, or I can live with my ears wide open listening to what my neighbor is going on with my neighbor. I like how Mother, Pari Mother not Mother Parisa, Mother Teresa uh, who was just a, a godly woman who loved God and just had such a compassionate heart for people. If you've never read any biographies uh, or any books on Mother Teresa, I'd encourage you to do so. It is inspiring and convicting and encouraging and just awe-inspiring of how God could use some woman who's not even five foot tall to make such a significant impact on the world. This is what Mother Teresa said about poverty. We think sometimes that poverty is only being hungry, naked, and homeless. The poverty of being unwanted, unloved, uncared for is the greatest poverty. There are so many people who live around us that are impoverished, lonely and broken, unloved, uncared for. When I lived in, uh, when Kyle and I lived in Chicago, 
before we moved out here uh, six years ago, uh, we lived um, in a caretaker's house. While I was uh, in seminary, uh, the caretaker's house was owned uh, by a woman who lived by herself, and uh, her home was a 20,000-square-foot mansion on an eight-acre estate. It was a pretty big place, and it was one of those things that you just see in magazines. You're like, wow, what kind of people live there? Well, we got to meet a person who actually lived there, and we stayed there for three years. And what was amazing is, from the outside, this woman who was uh, financially very well off, very stable, um, was one of the most sad, lonely, broken people Kyle and I had ever met. Kyle actually just talked to, uh, to our friend this week, and how you doing? What's been going on with you? How are your kids and your grandkids? And oh, they don't talk to me. What do you, your kids don't? No, I haven't talked to them in years. You ever get to see your grand? No. She just lives in this 20,000 square foot estate all by herself. I realize you might not know a person like that per se, but I'm trying to drive home the point that poverty, being poor, is not just a bread thing and is not just a home thing. It's a poverty of the soul. Living with our eyes and our ears wide open. Proverbs 28 verse 27 says this, He who gives to the poor will lack nothing, but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses. Proverbs is pretty bold, actually, on if you close your ears to the cry of people around you, there are consequences to that. And if you decide to close your eyes to what's happening in your world and the world around us, it will not go well for you. I certainly can't cover everything, but it would be safe to say that all is not well in the world we live in. I can't ignore, and I hope you can't either, that 3 billion people live on less than $2 a day. 1.8 million people live on less than a dollar a day. You have 1.2 billion people on less than two and 1.8 on less than one. I can't ignore that. I can't ignore things like we live in a world where somewhere between about, according to UNICEF, roughly 28,000 children die every single day to poverty. I can't close my eyes to the reality that we live in a world where nearly a billion people entered the 21st century just 10 years ago and can't read a lick of anything, can't even write their own name. I can't be blind to the fact that we live in a world where over 1.1 billion people don't even have access to water. How could you live without water? But yet 1.1 billion people do. We live in our country right here, where it's estimated, and these are tough estimates just because it's ever-changing, but roughly 3.5 million people live in homelessness. I can't shut my eyes to the reality that all is not well with the world around us. Now, it would be very easy to hear some of those things, and those are just a very small snapshot, and say, well, you know what? That's just all too big for me. I can't do anything about any of those things that you just mentioned. So what is the point of doing, I, I can't do anything, and it leads me to paralysis. If we are going to love our neighbor, we live with our ears wide open and we live with our eyes wide open. I like how Solomon says this in Proverbs 24. If you say, 
but we knew nothing about this. Does, that, does not he, meaning God, who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? I'm going to move on, but I just want to drive home the point. As you look around the world you interact with every day and the people, what are you hearing and what are you seeing? You cannot turn a deaf ear to people and you cannot close your eyes to the immediate needs of people around you. To love our neighbor begins with living with eyes and ears wide open. The second one is I make the decision, if I'm going to have wisdom applied to relationships with my neighbor, number two is I will live actively. And I don't mean having a gym membership where I'm working out. Scripture does say physical training is of some value, so that's okay. But what I'm talking about, living actively, is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 through 29. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. I love that verse. Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, well, just come back later. I'll give it tomorrow. When you now have it with you, do not plot harm against your neighbor who lives trustfully near you. Wisdom would call me to live a very active and reactive lifestyle, meaning I do not withhold good from people when it's in my power to do something good. Meaning if I have the opportunity to bless someone and I have the means, albeit small, medium, or big, I am always wisdom guiding me, doing good to my neighbor. When I look around and I see people, my first thought is, I can't do anything about that. My first thought is, God, is there something you'd want me to do? Is there something you'd want me to give? Is there some way that I could bless? Is there some way that I encourage? I like how um, Proverbs chapter uh, 31, verse 8 and 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. This past summer was my 20th uh, high school reunion. So I graduated high school in 1990. I didn't go to my uh, 20th reunion, um, but it got me thinking a lot about high school. Um, anyone post 20 years? A couple of you? Come on, Fred and Cheryl, raise your hand. Be proud. There you go. <laughs> Fred, you only graduated 22 years ago, so, you know. Um, it got me thinking a lot about who I was in high school, what kind of guy I was in high school. And it really asked, I was asking myself one question. If I could go back and do high school all over again, what would I actually do? And I'll ask you that same question. Some of you may have only been removed from high school for a few years, some 5, 10, 15 years, and places in between. If you were to go back and do high school all over again, what would you do differently? And if you're in high school right now, by the way, 
This is a good question for you to have an answer for because you still have the opportunity to do something very different. I know for me, 20 years ago, I was so just obsessed with wanting to be well-liked, with wanting to be the popular one, with wanting people to just appreciate and know me, and I just wanted to fit in with the crowd. I was so fearful of being rejected or, or not liked or kind of not on the in, whatever it might be. In essence, I was so consumed with myself. If I could rewind and do a, a do-over and apply what I know now to who I was then, what I would do differently is I would not be so obsessed with myself. I would not be so self-centered, so self-focused, because as I look back in high school, I missed opportunity after opportunity for all of the kids in my high school who were just so hurting and so lost and came from broken and busted homes, who were abused and just lonely. I just so consumed with me that I ignored everything that was happening around me. My fear is how we were in high school is sometimes how we are as adults, where we can be so consumed with me, where you can be so consumed with you that you are missing the opportunities that God's putting before you every single day in your neighbor to do good to those who deserve it. And when it's in your power to act, you act. Why? Because you're not just thinking about you. You're living eyes and ears, watching and listening. And when a neighbor comes across your path, my first thought is not what I can get from them. My first thought is, what can I give them? Yeah, it might be a finance thing, a money thing. It might be a word of encouragement. It might just be a helping hand. Living with our eyes and ears wide open. And number two was living, learning how to live actively. I like how Mother Teresa again said this. If you can't feed 100 people, then feed just one. Don't be consumed with, well, I can't really knock out all of these things happening in my world. Well, just start with one. I guarantee there's someone in all of our lives right now that is your neighbor that you see and you hear every day. And it's a good chance that they might be driving you nuts right now and you try to ignore them or avoid them, but they're there every day in the commute or they're there every day in your neighborhood or every time you go to get the mail, they seem to be standing by your mailbox. Whatever it might be, Start with one. Don't use the excuse, I can't impact all of global poverty. Well, you can impact one person. But I love how Mother Teresa said, if you can't feed a hundred, then feed one. She was thinking in hundreds, not just ones. She was thinking big. I want to be used of God to bless as many people that I possibly can. How many people saw Schindler's List? Okay, if you haven't seen it, it is an incredibly tough movie to watch. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Rent it today and go home. Oscar Schindler, if you're not familiar, was a man who just had such a broken heart for the Jews and what was being done to them during the time of the Holocaust. And he made it his mission in life to rescue and save as many Jews from the death camps as he possibly could. This is a quote. It's going to show you the clip, but I just read you the quote instead. At the end of his life, this is what Oscar Schindler said to his friend. 
I could have gotten more out. I could have gotten more. I don't know. If I just, I could have gotten more out. Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive because of you. Look at all of them. But if I made more money, I threw away so much money. You have no idea. If I had just, there will be generations because of what you did, Oscar. I didn't do enough. You did so much. And then he looks at his car, and he's got a Bentley. This car, why did I keep this car? Ten people right here. Ten people, ten more people could have been bought with this car. He looks down at a pen that he's got in his lapel jacket. This pen, two people. This is gold, two more people. He would have given me two for at least one, one person, a person. He got to the end of his life and he'd done so much. But he got to the end of his life and said, you know, I could have done more. I don't want to get to the end of my life with this thought of, I ignored my neighbor. Rather than having eyes open, ears open, and being very active and seeking to do good to those that were around me, and I had the power to do it, I don't want to get to the end of my life. I could have done more. But I was so consumed with me that I missed the opportunity. And Schindler, by the way, was not consumed with himself. That's number two. Number three, and this should go without saying, but if you're thinking that it's just hard to live with my eyes open, my ears open, and to live very actively, how do I, how do I actually do that? And I know this sounds repetitive, because I've already said love your neighbor, but the third principle that, wisdom, or that Proverbs teaches about how to have wisdom in our relationships with our neighbor is to live lovingly towards your neighbor. Proverbs 14, verse 21. He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. The Bible makes very clear, love God first and foremost, that's the greatest thing. The second greatest thing, most important thing, is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Wisdom dictates that I don't look at my neighbor and I'm annoyed by them. I'm frustrated by them. I wish them go away. They're an inconvenience to my day. Wisdom calls me to look at my neighbor and to love them. He who despises his neighbor sins, but blessed is he who is kind. Who is kind. St. Augustine uh, said this when asked about what does it really mean to love our neighbor? He said this, What does love look like? It has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what true, that is what love looks like. Again, he's just reiterating what I've been trying to say. I live eyes wide open, ears wide open, attentively, actively towards my neighbor. Not annoyed by them, but filled with kindness towards them. Proverbs 29, 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such 
concern. This is a hard verse because it forces us to ask a pretty profound question, will I care? Will I care? The righteous care. Those who have wisdom care. The godly care. If we who are Christians, and if you're here today and you're a Christian, will you care? Because the reality is if you're not willing to care and you are one who has been cared by greatly by God, who else will do it? Who else will care for those who are in great need? Mother Teresa again, do not think that love, in order to be genuine, has to be extraordinary. What we need is to love without getting tired. I love that. I don't think God's looking for extraordinary acts of love. He's already done that. What I think God and what Jesus has called us to is to love one another daily, to love relentlessly, to love tirelessly. If you are a person who has been doing that, you know that it can get tiresome. That's why I need to continually daily stay so close to the love that God has for me so that I can continue to be a conduit of God's love towards other people. Paul says this, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 6, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. One more time, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. What has been personally helpful for me in growing and learning how to love my neighbor is I ask myself a very simple question. When I come across, whether it's someone who's standing in line at the Chipotle register, what is the most loving thing that I can do for that person? And as an idea comes to my head, I seek to do that. I don't do that every single time because there's still a lot of selfishness in me getting rooted out. But I ask myself this question, what is the most loving thing that I can do for this person right now? God, give me that idea and then give me the grace to do that most loving thing. And the most loving thing might not be writing the person a big check. It might be actually writing them a note of encouragement, sending them a text, sending them an email. Heaven forbid actually breaking out a piece of paper and a pen and writing a letter. What is the most loving thing that you can do in that moment in time? And do it. That's what Paul said. Don't become weary in doing good. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Whenever you go from here today and you interact with your neighbor, the people that you're going to stand with, the people that you'll see, whoever it is, your waiter, your waitress, that's your neighbor. Ask, what is the most loving thing I can do? And if the idea comes in, you know, give them a 100% tip, do it. 
If it's just to give him a word of encouragement, man, you are the best waitress I've ever had in my entire existence. Whatever the most loving thing is, do the most loving thing because that is loving our neighbor. Wisdom calls, live with our ears and eyes wide open, live actively, doing good to our neighbor, and live lovingly towards our neighbor. And the last one is this. Live generously towards our neighbor. Live with eyes, ears open, live actively seeking to do good, live lovingly towards them, and then lastly, live generously. Paul did a great job last week talking about finances, and one aspect of that that he spoke is being generous, being a giving person. This is what Proverbs says, 11, verse 24 and 25. And this is what I love about God's economy, okay? One man gives freely, yet gains even more. How is that possible? How can I just give freely? Meaning I'm not even necessarily thinking about how I'm giving. I'm just giving. It's flowing out of me. But yet the more I give, the more I continue to get. That's how God's economy works. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly and comes to poverty. Great economics right there. If you continue to hold on to that which you think is bringing safety and security and all of this kind of stuff, it will actually bring ruin. But if you live in such a way to give freely, God puts more in your hands so you can just keep giving. I like how Charles uh, Spurgeon said this, God has a way of giving by the cartloads to those who give away by shovelfuls. It's this picture of a person who just keeps shoveling more and more away. And in his backyard, God just keeps dropping off more cartloads for the person to shovel away. Proverbs 22.9, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares food with the poor. The two verses I read, Proverbs 11 and then Proverbs 22, two very short verses taught three truths about giving or being generous. You will always gain more than you give. I dare you to try to prove that principle wrong. You will always gain more than you give. Again, quoting Spurgeon from the same source, in all of my years of service to my Lord, I have discovered a truth that has never failed and has never been compromised. That truth that is beyond the realm of possibility that one has the ability to outgive God. Even if I give the whole of my worth to him, he will find a way to give back to me much more than I gave. The simple principle, I cannot outgive God. If I think I'm being so generous, it's not more generous than God. The principle, you'll always gain more than you give. The second one, you will prosper. I like how, and this is not prosperity gospel. It's a very simple principle that says, for those who are generous, God is bringing refreshment towards them. That's what Proverbs 11 says. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. You will be blessed by God. As Proverbs 22, 9 says, a generous man himself, you'll be blessed. You will be blessed. How can you grow in being a generous person? It's funny, when women look at Proverbs 31, uh, they you know, have a few favorite verses, 
in Proverbs 31. If you're not familiar with Proverbs 31, the bulk of Proverbs 31 talks about what a godly woman looks like. And a verse just tucked away in verse 20 says this, she opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. We usually go for the verses of, you know, beauty is, is, is fading, charm, deceptive, but a woman who fears the Lord, she is to be praised. That's a great verse and it's very true. But what Proverbs teaches about this woman is she lives life like this. She has her hands wide open, not clutched like this, not fist like holding on real tight. The Proverbs woman, the godly woman, and I think generosity starts with a human who's willing to say, I live like this. I don't even own anything because it's all from God anyways. If he sees fit to want me to give away, it's gone. I don't care what it is. Whatever it might be, I start by living with my hands wide open. And the second aspect of living generously is living with your hands wide open, not clutching or clinging on to things, is to every single day, if you struggle with being a generous person, just pause and consider the generosity of God towards you. I can't help but just look at the cross behind me and say, that's how generous God was to me. When I was an evil, sinful, wicked person rebelling against God, God said, Michael Davis, I will demonstrate my love for you and that I will send my son to die on a cross to take your place so that you can have a relationship with me. I love Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Being generous, live with your hands just wide open ready to give at any moment of any day to anyone without finding fault. You don't deserve it. You haven't worked hard enough for it. Can you imagine if God used that standard on us? We'd never get anything because we don't deserve it. So we can apply that same principle to our neighbor. Give freely, give generously, arms wide open. If you need it and I have it and it's in my power to do so, it's yours. Living with our eyes and ears wide open, living not just attentively, but very actively. When I have the power to do good to those who are in need of being, having good done towards them, I'm the guy, you're the guy, you're the woman who is doing good. You live towards your neighbor very lovingly. And then the last and the fourth one was very simple of be a generous person. I went back and forth on whether I wanted to read this last uh, quote to you, but I'm going to because it's pretty convicting. And I read it uh, and it just convicted the heck out of me. So I want you to sit in my conviction boat. <laughs> I get asked the question a lot, well, how much am I supposed to give? And I don't mean just finances, but really how much am I supposed to give of myself? And this quote here is, uh, comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, when he's talking about our obligation as Christians to our neighbor, to our society that we live in. And he said this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. 
In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving expenditures excludes them. That last part there just convicted the heck out of me. There has to be things in my life that I would like to do, but I can't do because I'm just being generous. And I'm not, this is not guilt trip. That's not what C.S. Lewis intended. That's certainly not what I'm intending. Is God has just been so generous to me. And this is what happens. If you've ever experienced the generosity of someone else in your life, generosity breeds and gives birth to more generosity. It's infectious. If you have someone who's been generous to you, whether it be financially, whether it be just someone sharing their time, their counsel, their words of encouragement, whatever it might be, it's contagious. When you get that generosity bug in you, there's something that happens where it's just joyful to give. Yeah, I could go do this and buy that and have that, but I'd rather give. That's the heart of it. The final question that we covered in our series in Proverbs after 13 weeks of walking through is how can I love my neighbor? I really want us as a church to do this really well. Because I know when I'm loving my neighbor, people are seeing a small demonstration of the love of God. And I'm convinced the most loving thing I can do for anyone on this planet is to love them in such a way where they would see the hands, the feet, the heart of God demonstrated in their life so that they too would not be impoverished of soul, that their soul would just be filled, overflowing with the generous love of God. If you would be wise, if you would have wisdom, show up in the relationships that we have with the people that stand around us. We will love our neighbor. We will listen. We will watch. We will react. We will give. We will be generous. And again, not to make much of ourselves, but because God has done that for us. One last verse, and I'll close with this. This is not going to be on the screen. I just want you to hear this. Because if you have a hard time really understanding wisdom, knowing wisdom, applying wisdom, whether it be specifically to our neighbor. This is the answer to living out wisdom every day. 1 Corinthians verse one, chapter 1, verse 23-24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If I want the power of God at work in my life, in me and through me, I need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If I want wisdom, if I want to have wisdom manifest itself in how I live every single day, I need the wisdom of God from God in me. And the wisdom of God, as Paul teaches, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God.
before we uh, uh, worship, I just want to give you an opportunity just to be quiet. Um, and what you have been doing, being very quiet in the last 45 minutes. But what I mean is for you just to sit. Sit with, I just sense God has been saying something to you. And just sit and listen to what God would be speaking to you. And whatever God is saying, would you just pray a simple prayer? God, would you give me the courage to do what you've just laid on my heart to do? We spent 13 weeks of not trying to fill ourselves with just knowledge. But it's time to take what we know, what we've been taught, what we've been learning. I don't just mean on a Sunday morning but apply it to how we live with God, with ourselves, and with those around us.